This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the City of New York. We're joined today by Dr. Henry Colcraft, the John C. Dalton Professor of Physiology and Cellular Biophysics at Columbia University Irving Medical Center at Columbia University. We'll be talking today about the way his discoveries around ubiquitinase will allow the body to stop destroying perfectly usable proteins and potentially reverse or even cure cystic fibrosis and other diseases about his uh, success in launching not one but two startups concurrently out of his research lab at Columbia, and what it's been like mentoring a lab full of incredibly talented graduate students and helping them make the transition out into industry. Dr. Colcraft, thank you for joining me today. Maybe let's start off with the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about the work of your lab in layperson terms? What are the general themes of your research and what got you interested in them in the first place? Our body is made up of cells, trillions of cells, and each cell has a membrane that surrounds it. Proteins are the workhorses of cells, and we work on a particular class of proteins known as ion channels. So they sit on the surface of of, of cells and allow ions to come in and out of the cell. An analogy for how to think about this is think about a, a walled city and the ions as the people trying to get in and out of the out of the city well the people aren't able to go through the wall they have to go through a gate so the ion channels that we study are like that gate that can open and close and allow people or ions to come in and out of, um, of the cell we study these ion channels from a number of different perspectives and so one of the things we study are uh, these um, ion channels are wonderful molecular machines and we try to understand how they function and how they are regulated. I can back up and say that these ion channels are very important for a number of different roles in the, in the body. They allow the heart to beat. They are necessary for allowing neurons to talk to each other. That allows us to be able to think and hear and form memories. And they allow things like um, allowing the surface of the lungs to be hydrated so that you don't get thick buildup of, um, of mucus. And so they're very important for, for our basic sort of um, um, physiology inside the, inside the body. All right, so we, we studied them, first of all, from a fundamental way, how, how do they work? And the second thing we like to do is to develop tools that allows us to interrogate how they work in, in different ways. I think in any, in any field, the development of new tools allows you to ask questions that um, have previously been unattainable. And this allows us to, the development of the tools allows us to, to do that. And the third thing is that that's more recent. We look for opportunities where we can take some of our basic discoveries and try to translate them into things that are going to be useful for potential therapeutics, as, as, a, as an example. You mentioned tools and techniques that you've developed in the lab that make your work easier. Can you make that come alive for us a little bit? Like, what's an example of a tool that you guys have developed and what's it allowed you to do? One tool that we've developed really rose from the realization that there are a number of different diseases, things like cystic fibrosis, epilepsy, cardiac arrhythmias, that on the surface look really different. And we realized that they were caused by uh, a mechanism that was common amongst all of them in that there are mutations in ion channels that let these channels not be able to get to where they need to function on the cell surface. And we realized that normal channels 
in order to get to the cell surface are regulated and a protein that's utilized to regulate their trafficking, which is a word that means how they get to the to the cell surface. The the a protein tag called ubiquitin is added to them, and that allows them to either go or no go to to the surface. So it's almost and like really, a, it's almost like a security pass to get through that gate in the wall that you mentioned. That's right, and in a way, um, having too much ubiquitin really biases a normal ion channel to to be stuck inside the cell and also to to be trashed, to be, to be degraded. And so the light bulb moment for us was the realization that many mutant ion channels behave like a normal channel that has a lot of ubiquitin on it. So we had a hypothesis that if we were able to remove ubiquitin from mutated ion channels, we would potentially be able to rescue them and allow them to get to where they needed to go to in order to to function and then alleviate the symptoms of a, of a disease. So the problem with that, ubiquitin is called ubiquitin because it's ubiquitous. Mm. Um, it's, it's, it's present in, the, in, in all cells, and essentially all proteins utilize ubiquitin to regulate the activity and, and their, their expression levels. And so the problem really becomes, how do you target and strip ubiquitin off a particular protein without disturbing all the um, other proteins in the, inside the cell, which would, would be toxic? And so we developed a tool that allowed us to do that. That tool really involved a way to essentially have a a magic bullet that would target to your protein of choice. And we did that using something that's very similar to how an antibody works. And we fused it to an, a protein called an enzyme, which is really the cell's own natural ubiquitin erasers. And so in that way, we're able to direct a, a, a ubiquitin eraser to a particular ion channel of choice using this um nanobody or this uh, miniature antibody. And these nanobodies, are these things that you've developed in your lab or are they found in nature? Like what is a nanobody? A nanobody is a type of antibody. Um, so humans uh, have um, an antibody that is, that is large and Y-shaped and it has two bits, um, one called a light chain and a, and a heavy chain that are joined together by by bonds and the end part of that is what recognizes an antigen so you need those two parts to come together and that's problematic if you want to express a human antibody inside the cell because the environment of the inside of a cell is such that the two parts fall apart and so they are not able to recognize an antigen or a protein that they are targeted to on the other hand things like llamas sharks and and camels they have a type of antibody which is made up of a, a single domain. So you don't have two parts that have to be bound together. The part of the antibody that, re that recognizes the, the antigen is, the, is that nanobody. And you can take that small part of, the, of that antibody and express it inside a cell and it would still recognize the antigen or the protein that you raised it towards. And so that's what a nanobody is. So if you walk us through how this would work in something like cystic fibrosis. So you've got a, a problem with the proteins being taken out of service, in a sense, and yes. not being allowed to go through that ion channel. Like, how is this helpful to the human body? Okay, so in cystic fibrosis, um, as an example, you have mutations in 
a chloride ion channel. So this chloride ion channel normally gets to the um, the epical surface of the lungs. This is the part of the lungs which is at the air liquid interface. So as as you, as we well know, we we breathe in through through our lungs and and this channel being at the surface of of, of the epithelial cells lining the lung is important for allowing water to 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 come out and hydrate the the surface of the lungs and that allows specialized parts of the cell called cilia to essentially remove mucus and other dirty things from from the from the lung surface when the chloride channel called CFTR if it doesn't get there then you don't get the hydration of the of the lung surface and you get a thick buildup of mucus in the lungs and so people suffering from cystic fibrosis have the thick buildup of mucus which tends to trap bacteria and so they get recurrent infections and inflammation that ultimately destroys the lungs and 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 gives them a, a very short life expectancy you know peaking around 40 to 45 years old the idea would be to rescue that channel which is trapped inside the cell what we were able to show in our experiments is that if we target or if we're able to deep ubiquitinate, remove the ubiquitin in a targeted manner from that channel, it's able to get back to the cell surface and function. And so that would be the approach that we, we, we take. So we think that if you remove ubiquitin, it actually combines with a small molecule developed by a pharmaceutical company to actually improve the delivery of the mutant channel to the cell surface. That's amazing. So in some ways, by rescuing the proteins that otherwise might get thrown away, you you can really have a direct impact on human health. You mentioned earlier this could be these kind of um, ubiquitinase problems are endemic in a whole bunch of different diseases. Uh, do you see this as the, the cystic fibrosis is the primary goal, or do you have plans to go after other illnesses as well? So in fact, um, our lab is not a cystic fibrosis lab, and we started, we, we, we actually started the first example of this that we used it on we used it on was um, a potassium channel that is in the heart. There's a channel that's important for the electrical activity of the heart and there are mutations in it which cause a syndrome called long QT syndrome. And the the problem with this um, particular syndrome is that it makes it increases the the risk for lethal cardiac events and cardiac arrhythmias that cause sudden sudden death. So I think what, what we showed was that we could utilize the same approach, now targeting the, the eraser to this potassium channel in the heart and be able to rescue the surface density of particular mutations. And that was enough to normalize or, or, or correct the electrical abnormality in the heart. And so what we think is that the, one of the selling points of this technology is its, is its broad applicability. And it's not just to ion channels, it's basically to any, any protein inside the cell, which when it's degraded or decreased expression leads to a disease. So we think it has many different um, applications. So for example, other diseases related to protein degradation include some cancers where proteins that are normal, that are used to prevent uh, abnormal cell proliferation are degraded. There are also 
potential applications for viruses because certain viruses come inside a cell and they hijack the cell's ubiquitin machinery in order to propagate themselves. And so there are applications for cancer um, as antiviral therapeutics um, in the future. We at Columbia Technology Ventures are fortunate to work with roughly 400 amazing innovations emerging from the research labs at Columbia every year that lead to about you know, 100 commercial agreements, a whole bunch of startups. But even with all of that, it is exceptionally rare that we have a single invention from a research lab, which leads not to one, but actually to two venture-backed startups being launched. So can you just tell us a, a bit about those startups? Yeah, certainly. So I, th I think back to an earlier question, I, I, I mentioned the fact that when we started this targeted deubiquitination approach, we made it by fusing an antibody to um, <clears throat> a deubiquitinase, a dub, or, or this ubiquitin eraser enzyme. So that approach would work for a biological delivery approach where you have a gene therapy or something similar. In order to make it more generalizable, we realized that we would have to demonstrate that we could achieve the same sort of efficacy by having a bivalent system that would allow us to recruit an endogenous deubiquinase to a target of interest. So once we did that proof of concept, it, it opened the gates for showing that you could potentially achieve what we've done with the protein engineering with a small molecule. And so that allowed this technology then to be, to be marketed in, in two different ways. One as a potential small molecule therapeutic um, development, and then the other as a potential biologic um, delivery sort of system. And, and we, we are fortunate that we got interest in, 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 both, um, in both approaches. And for, for, I, I would say that was a perfect storm of things that allowed this, this to happen. First of all, I think the, the technology is, is a great technology. It's easy to explain. It's very powerful and it's very general. And so I think the concept of it comes across um, pretty, pretty well. The second element was really an outstanding student who was driven, energetic, and intellectually engaged and was really interested in, 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 in seeking out these um, potential um, commercial opportunities for the technology. And, and, and that, so that's was, Scott, was, I take it. That's Scott, yeah. Scott Kennedy, the lead graduate student on that, on that project. The third thing was the, um, the help of, the, um, of CTV, the Columbia Tech Ventures Group. I mean, I think as an academic, I, I really didn't know all that was involved in trying to get this, this thing set up. But, you know, going through the steps of filing an invention report, having Columbia file patents. Um, a very important thing was um, a translational accelerator program and that we, we got into and obtained some funding from, which provided a boot camp to, to educate um, academics on various aspects of trying to commercialize an invention. We got coaching with them pitching, which was a very um, interesting and very useful sort of thing. And then the really critical element was to meet some of these um, executives and residents who got a first-hand look at the technology 
and the presentation of it from 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 the group. One of them took an interest in it, Mike Norson, uh, from Alexandria Launch Labs at Columbia. And what Mike did was he recognized the potential of the technology and got us in touch with an entrepreneur who was looking for his next opportunity. So we'd, I think over the course of two, three years, we'd had a couple of people who sort of shown some interest as, as potential entrepreneurs, but but the, the timing just wasn't right and and then the fit wasn't wasn't great. But when we met the person that uh, Mike introduced us to, um, Brian, you know, it was it was it was it was a great match. Um, the first one is um, we were scientifically aligned. He saw the technology and and was immediately excited about it. And I thought I think that was a that was a great selling point because we I think for what we're looking for was people who are going to be enthusiastic about the science. And we think that that will allow that to propel the, the business enterprise in a, in a more robust, best way. Through their contacts of um, Mike and Brian, who started pitching out to venture capital folks and generated really quite a bit of interest, um, even from the, from the outset. We finally got um, an interested party, um, and it was it was quite interesting that the team that ultimately took took this on, we had actually already made a, a presentation to them at, at, at the CTV that had been set up um, a year prior by Maria Romani, and so what when when he saw it the second time, we had obviously made a lot of progress, and we think that 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 change in progress was also essential in, in, in allowing them to come on board. So, yeah. And now you've gone on to raise an enormous Series A round of funding. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the funding process. So, yeah, we, we started pitching um, around August of last year, and we, we pitched to a number of different VCs, including um, Versant Ventures. And Versant very quickly, I think, saw the power of the technology and really um, put together a term sheet really after three weeks after our initial meeting. Wow. And so that that sort of um, laid the groundwork for, for how we began to think about things. And we'd initially gone in with a, a more modest objective, raising something like $7 million to really prove out the technology and, 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 and then go forward to, to a Series A. But in conversations with um, Carla Rizzuto and Claire Ozawa at, um, at Versant, they they thought the moment was right and actually right for a larger series so that we could really prove out the technology as well as going in a big way in a, in a multi-dimensional um, parallel processing way so that we could really um, seize the moment of this of this really powerful technology. And so, with um, Versant as the as the as the lead investor, we um, put together a syndicate that includes um, Cormorant, NEA, um, also Euclidean Capital, and Alexandria Venture um, Investments. And and so, what that's given us is um, a lot of leeway in terms of developing out the technology and taking it out to 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 an I and D. What I think is so fascinating about your journey with this is that. You've been at this for a while. You've really been working on it. And in the end, your version of success that you had for what you, the fundraising plan, 
actually the market spoke and said, you know, that's great, but we can do even more. Like we can help you bring this, you know, much further along and get this into patients' hands much faster. And that must have just been incredibly exciting. It absolutely was. Um, we were really blown away by 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 the um, by how it was received. And actually, looking back on it, I think indeed it it is um, a great idea to really have this amount of capital behind you, so that you can really um, go out and and improve the technology in a way that that will be the most robust and get it into patients um, into patients as quickly as possible, as you just said. And w- so, where's this company? Is it going to be in New York? Yes, actually, it's um, actually um, in the Alexandria Launch Labs that was recently um, opened up in Colombia. So it's just a, happens to be a stone throws away from 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 the lab where the technology was actually developed. I think the CTV has been a wonderful partner in in, in our journey to try and and commercialize this technology. I think there was a lot of know-how. There was a lot of going back and forth, especially with our technology licensing officer, Juan Martinez, who, who, was, who was helpful um, each step of the way. And I think, I think yeah, having the CTV there was, was absolutely essential for us to be able to, to, to do this. And the programs that they put together with the translational accelerator, I think was, was extremely helpful. The, the university has been a great partner in, in our ability to, to bring this um, forward. Dr. Colcraft, is this life, the, the life of an academic scientist, what you always saw for yourself? Not exactly, um, but I do, uh, when I recount how I became a scientist, I, I start from when I was a young boy, around 10, 11 years old or so, and one of the things that I loved to do was was to read. And in our house, my parents were, were avid readers, so they had a lot of books and, and things around, and and I picked up the habit. And the particular genre of book that I loved was the murder mystery, um, ones which had a, a very smart de- de- detective that was involved in um, solving solving um, crime mysteries. So think about Agatha Christie and Hercule Poirot, um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock Holmes. I was just fascinated by how they could take something that seemed very mysterious at the at the surface and use logic and deduction to really arrive at an answer. I never I didn't become a detective, but when I was um when I was in college in London, I I went to King's College in London. I, I, I took a course with a pharmacology professor, Dr. Alan Prince. And that course was really taking the original scientific um, literature from, from a journal and reading that particular piece of work and, and dissecting it in the in the in the class. And I was really taken by how similar the logic and deductions that scientists took to solve biological um, problems or mysteries really was very similar to what people like Hercule Poirot and and then Sherlock Holmes did. And it was after taking that class that I decided I wanted to go and pursue a PhD and become become a scientist. Dr. Colcraft, I know you, like many faculty, are very supportive of the graduate students in your lab, not only for their own projects, but also to help overcome roadblocks in each other's work and, and sort of that the team environment. And I also know you've been a, a, a tireless promoter of your student, Scott Canner's role in the development of the NDUB program. For, for the non-scientists in the audience, what role do graduate students and postdocs play in a research lab? Well, thank you for that question. So I think graduate students and postdocs really are the lifeblood of 
of, um, of an academic lab, they, they are absolutely essential for the research that goes on. In terms of mentoring styles, I, you know, every student and every person is different. And so there, there are some tailored um, approaches for, for each and every one of them. But there are some common things that I try to bring to the table when um, a person comes into the lab. The first thing is it's really important to get them on, on, on a great project. And I think a great project is one that has a certain element of risk. It's, it's going to be new. If they succeed, it will bring new, um, new information out. And the best projects that I like have the, those three elements that I spoke about. They, they allow you to think mechanistically about how something works. And so you, you open up a new vista or a new knowledge into how a particular ion channel works or how it's regulated. I like them to develop new tools. I think um, innovation is, is, is very important for them to be able to sell the ideas and the development of a new tool inherently is an, is a, is an innovative process. And then when there's opportunity, I'd like them to think about how the, what they've learned um, from the mechanisms, um, mechanistic understanding and the development of the tool, how that can potentially be applied to, to something useful that um, could, could ultimately make a difference uh, potentially in, in, in people's lives. And so I run my mentorship around those sort of three principles. It's absolutely essential for them to learn how to write a good grant. Um, scientific research is, is funded by by writing grants, and it's almost essentially like a small business in that sense. You you write grants to support the work going on in the lab and the people that that undertake that work. And so the ability for them to to write a grant is is is, is critical. The the other thing that's also very important is the ability to communicate the science that you've done in a way that is really accessible to 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 everyone not just some specialists in the field and so i often challenge them to say to to describe what they do in ways that you know their grandmothers would understand of course some grandmothers have phds but i think you get the idea <laughs> yeah uh, that's yeah. right but to 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 make it very simple so that a layman can understand the importance of what what, what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, in the course of every project, there comes a time where, you know, you, there are forks in the road and there are certain experiments that you can do. And I think when you come to those forks, one thing I always encourage them to do is to do a risk benefit sort of assessment. You know, there are certain experiments that you can do, but whether you should do them is it's, it's debatable. And so we, we go through that process a lot. Dr. Colcraft, thanks so much for joining us today and for the kind words. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Henry Colcraft. And thanks for joining us today.